Thank you, Tim. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you here this morning, all your smiling faces. You know, sometimes vision is something we don't think about very much until things go wrong. Some of us are getting older, we know that. You know, we didn't used to need glasses to read, and now we do. And when you can't see well in any other sense, you need glasses, you need contacts, you need something. When you can see things clearly, it does help you to make some decisions, like should I walk there, should I do this, should I do that. Of course, vision can also refer to many different things, not just physical sight. doesn't always necessarily refer to physical sight. Here's a little vision-related humor to illustrate. Now, I know, speaking of vision, that text is probably too small for most of you to read, so let me read it for you. How can the future be so hard to predict when all of my worst fears keep coming true? That's a vision. And then this one, how about this? Dog says, my eyes are blurry, I has cataracts. <laughs> See the cat on his head there, covering his eye. And then there's this one. Does this guy have nerves of steel or just very bad peripheral vision? <laughs> now in our faith, we tend to think of vision as something kind of ethereal, almost mysterious, and maybe sometimes it's hard to grasp or to ascertain. I think that's because when we think of vision, most of us who have been believers for quite some time have largely been shaped by one verse, and I'll bet you you know this verse even if you don't know the reference. It's Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, it's interesting that when we think of Christian, quote-unquote, vision, what we think of is this verse, first at least, if not the only verse that we think of. And it's from the King James Version, which is also interesting because fewer and fewer of us actually use that version. But it's the verse that's most often referenced when referring to a sense of vision when it's related in some way, shape, or form to our faith. And here's the interesting thing. It's a somewhat misleading translation, and it's perhaps led us to think of vision in a way that's not entirely accurate. There are a few things that are misleading about this translation. One is that the word vision, while it's accurate in the translation, it needs to be more fully understood. The word refers primarily to revelation from God. And the word vision is used in Proverbs because in the Old Testament, the primary way that the people heard from God was through the prophets who revealed God's will and God's word to them. So vision means instruction in God's truth, which was by prophets. And of course, in the New Testament, that was through vision. So far, so good. Well, the next part of the verse, which says the people perish, is a little bit more misleading. The Hebrew there actually means to cast off restraint. Other versions and some of those that you're reading here this morning, like the New American Standard, uh, which says the people are unrestrained, or even the English Standard Version, which says the people cast off restraint, they're much more accurate renderings of the original Hebrew language of this verse. But we can learn more still by reading the remainder of this verse. The verse that we read... Without vision, the people perish is from the King James, but it's only the first half of the verse. One of the things that we always remind ourselves of in house church, right, Piccolo House Church folks, is context. When we study scripture, context, you have to pay attention to the context. 
And until I studied this passage in uh, relation to this message, I have to be honest with you. I couldn't have told you the second half of this verse. I'm guessing that that's probably true of a lot of you too. So let me read the whole thing in another version. And this is the New American Standard Version of Proverbs 29:18, Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. Aha! So here, in the second half of this one verse, we see a very clear connection to what kind of vision or revelation the writer of this proverb has in mind. It's not some ethereal, mysterious, quote-unquote prophetic vision of the future or a vision of where people need to go or what they need to do. It's not about direction in ministry. It's much more simple than that. It's much more basic than that. It's the law. It's the law. And the law in the Old Testament is almost always a synonym for what? For the Word of God. It's almost always a synonym for the Word of God. So we learn from this proverb that the absence of God's revelation, that is, when people don't have God's Word, it leads to a loss of control and undisciplined living. That's the proverb. That's what it says. It can lead to chaos. And don't we see that illustrated so clearly in our culture where the word of God is not heard or when it is, it's so often ignored. And don't we see that? I'm sure some of us can think of that even in people we know who've ignored the word of God and they are now suffering the consequences to their own peril they've ignored the word and their lives are a mess as a result. Isn't that an illustration of what this proverb means? So... This verse is stating that without God's word, people abandon themselves to their own sinful ways. On the other hand, keeping or obeying God's law brings happiness. So we have to remember that in this time in Christian history, there is no new revelation, folks. There is no new revelation. We can gain new understanding, at least new to us, of God's already revealed word. But there is no new revelation. The word of God is sufficient. Psalm 119 verse 7 tells us that the word of the Lord is perfect. The law or the word perfect is the translation of a common Hebrew word meaning whole, meaning complete, meaning sufficient. It conveys the idea that something is comprehensive. So scripture is comprehensive. It embodies all that is necessary for one's spiritual life. We see this born out in the word, which speaks that of itself. I think it's interesting, I thought of this as I studied this passage of scripture, we sometimes get a scripture verse and we get that commonly heard interpretation of it, don't we? And we get that so ingrained in us that we miss the real message. And I have to confess that for my entire Christian life, that has been the case with this verse until this morning. But... That was just an introduction, folks. All of that is really just an introduction to what I want to really get across this morning, which does have to do with vision. If this verse is telling us we need vision, it's important to remember how we get that vision as well as what that vision is, which we've already begun to examine. If you remember nothing else this morning from this sermon, I'd ask you to consider these things. Now, my idea of vision has always been these kinds of things because I kind of accepted 
that common interpretation of where there is no vision, the people perish, or without vision, the people perish. As it's often taught very similarly, actually, in the secular world or the Christian world, we see this idea of vision, vision casting, vision statements, vision for this business, vision for that church. Now, I'm not saying these things are necessarily wrong when they're approached correctly, okay? But when it comes to the idea of vision in Scripture, there's a fuller and more important point. And as I studied and prayed about this, I had to me what was a new insight. Now, maybe this won't be new to many of you, but you're probably smarter and less thick-headed than I am. The important thing is not so much that a leader or a believer has vision for direction or plans or strategies or what God will do. Those, nothing wrong with those things, but that's not the most important thing. Or what a person or organization will become. The most important thing, and it's really foundational for all who follow Christ, is that believers have a vision. And when I say believers have a vision, I mean that is they are able to see and own and believe two key things. Who God is and what God has already done in Christ Jesus. That's it, folks. God has already given us the two primary ways of obtaining this vision. So how does that happen? These things are new and better than what they had in the Old Testament, thanks be to God. In the Old Testament, they had the law and the prophets, which was the way they received God's word, and that's a wonderful thing. And we still have the benefit of the same. We have our Bible. We have the Word of God, which contains a record not only of what God spoke and did in the Old Testament, but the account of His new covenant in Christ. Again, this is a new and better covenant, and it's enough for us. It's the record of faith once for all delivered to the saints, as it says in Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Every other kind of vision, every other kind of vision, whether it's direction or strategy, all flows from the Word of God. Direction, guidance, inspiration, strategy all flow from the vision that God gives of himself in these two ways, in creation and in his word. And of course, his word reveals God's nature. It reveals his character. It reveals what he has done for us in Christ, who is in fact what? The living word, isn't he? So the way we achieve that is his creation and his word. Remember that the vision we most need to see is who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. So I had this insight into this idea of vision. And I began to ask myself, what is my vision? What is my vision? What do I see when I wake up? What do I see when I go to bed at night? I'm not talking about the fact that when I wake up, I see my alarm clock, and when I go to bed, I see the light going out, okay? I'm talking about my mind's eye. What do I see in my mind's eye or through the eyes of my heart when I'm going about my day-to-day -day tasks? What follows me everywhere? What indeed consumes the majority of my waking moments? And immediately, I thought of the great old hymn that we sing here, and we sang this morning by my request, Be Thou My Vision. I thought of that all this week. I had that swimming around in my brain, the tune and the words. The first verse of the song captures the heart of what we are after this morning. So let me read these words again from the first verse. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. 
not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Now this isn't written in everyday English, is it? In fact, I thought of this when I was uh, looking at this passage, this uh, verse from this song this week. I, I remember where I first learned that naught means nothing or zero. Or I remember where I first learned it, Beverly Hillbillies. Jethro, huh? He double, wanted to be a no, double knot spy, huh? That's anybody else remember that? Or am I the only one that watched the Beverly Hillbillies? Anyway, so it's not written in our everyday English, is it? In fact, this was originally written in Gaelic by an Irish poet in the sixth century. Consider that these words were written centuries ago, and the original poem was actually much longer than what we sing today. The hymn was translated from Irish to English in 1905, so centuries later, by Mary Byrne. I can get you a copy of the original translation of the poem, which again has a lot more in it and is a lot more old English and more difficult to understand. In 1912, a woman named Eleanor Hull arranged the song into the verse that's most commonly found in our English hymnals today. And the music to accompany the lyrics is an ancient Irish folk tune called Slain, which is named after a hill in Ireland called Slain. And the music that we associate with the lyrics, they weren't combined actually until 1919. So this, the lyrics of this song have been around for centuries, but it's only about a century that we've sung it anywhere close to the current form that we sing it. So the song today was originally a poem about St. Patrick who brought Christianity to Ireland. So it took a 20th century Welsh music arranger to combine the tune from an ancient Irish folk song with an English woman's versification of a modern English uh, Irish linguist translation of an ancient Irish Christian about a Catholic saint. That's a fairly ecumenical song, isn't it? But think about what these words mean. Think about what these words mean. And let's do our best to connect it this morning to this idea of vision that we're looking at, that we're exploring. The Lord is our vision. The Lord is our vision. And you know what? This is a prayer. This is not just a song we sing. It is that. It's a way to worship God. But this is a prayer, isn't it? Be thou, Lord, please be, right? Be thou my vision. This is a prayer that God would develop this idea in us as believers, that he would be the Lord, that he would be the boss, that he would be the one who's large and in charge of our lives, of my heart. Amen? My heart is the center of who I am. In Scripture, the heart refers to the center of one's being. It involves emotions, it involves reason, and it involves your will. So having God truly be in charge of your heart seems to be a prerequisite to the idea of having Him truly be your vision. That's a little easier to grasp in the Old English, but the next line of this song really hits this idea more fully where it says, Not be all else to me save that thou art. Let me take a shot at modernizing this verse and translating this. Everything else is nothing compared to you. Or to be consistent with this as a prayer, may nothing else be more important to me than you. That's what this song is saying. Now, I have to be honest, folks. That's my heart's desire. That's truly what I desire, that nothing else would be more important but I'm not sure I'm there. 
there are things that are really important to me that can crowd out Christ from my vision. And I have to say, they're usually not necessarily even bad things. You know, most of the time they're actually even good things. Those really important things to me, I believe, are quite biblically sound, and I believe in the right context, in the right priority, they even please God. But they can still distract me from the Lord being my vision. And they can still occupy a place in my heart that should be owned only, exclusively, completely, wholly by Him. We see this idea of the Lord being our vision really illustrated in several places in the Word of God. And we're just going to highlight a few of those this morning. We see it in Psalm 73 in this passage where the psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can we really say, can we really say that there is nothing on earth that we desire besides Him, but Him? Can we really say that God is the strength of our heart, that God is our portion? In other words, He's enough, that He's enough. Can we declare with the psalmist that God is the only one who satisfies, the only good thing in life that truly satisfies us, that compared to Him, nothing else measures up? That's hard for most of us to honestly say, if we're honest with ourselves. You know what? We rightly enjoy the good things God has given us in this life. But again, compared to Him, those good things cannot measure up. Now the day will come, and this is a glorious thing to consider, but the day will come for those who are in Christ when this will all be absolutely true. He will be our vision. That day when we're, when we're transformed and we're no longer subject to the curse of the fall is the day when He will be our consuming passion. Our hearts then will be so full of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We'll be so aware of His glory and all the good things, all the wonderful things He's done for us that everything else, even the good things, and I think the good things that some of which we may actually enjoy in His eternal kingdom, but all of those things will be as nothing compared to His glory and His honor and His praise. But that day is not yet. Still, I believe God wants us to grow in this. He wants me to grow in this. I believe that God is already transforming us. And as part of that change, He's having more and more of our heart. He wants to own more and more of our heart. Having Him truly be more and more our all in all, which is another song we sang this morning that captures the same idea. We see this idea not only in the Old Testament, but it's clearly seen in the New Testament as well. Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So think for a moment about what Paul is saying here in this passage that he wrote to the Philippian church. Now he wrote this verse immediately after he had considered all the quote-unquote good things in, about his life, all of his accomplishments, all of what he referred to as gain. 
And he didn't say here that gain was bad in and of itself. What he said is that by comparison, it amounted to nothing. But comparison to what? Comparison to knowing Christ. To knowing Christ. So maybe we could say in our context this morning that all these things don't matter compared to having Christ be my vision and making Him my all in all. And Paul's comparison here was pretty strong. He said that what formerly went into the gain column, his power, his prestige, his obedience, now goes into the loss column. And likewise, the crucified Messiah, whom he had assumed must be a loss, is now seen as the ultimate gain. So Paul, again, he's drawing a comparison here. And he says that these good things were rubbish. They were trash. They were only worth as much as the things that we throw away by comparison to the value of knowing Jesus more and more each day. So think of it this way. And perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps Paul had this in mind when he wrote this. Now Paul, if you remember, he had been at sea and he had been in a storm. And to save the lives of the people aboard, they threw overboard all of the valuable cargo that they were carrying, weren't they? So the idea here seems to be, what I might obtain or did possess, I regard as loss in comparison with the knowledge of Christ, even as seamen do on the goods on which they set a high value in comparison with their lives. Valuable as they may be, they are willing to throw them all overboard in order to save themselves. I think that's a good illustration of what Paul is after here. So life, life is more important than things or even other people, no matter how valuable they are. And Paul recognized that Jesus was the source of eternal life. He was, by his own declaration, the way, the truth, and the life. So by comparison, knowing Christ was way, way, way more important, more valuable than anything or anyone else. So in an accounting sense, I'm married to an accountant, so I can say stuff like this, those things were, for Paul, a loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Centuries before, the words to this hymn that we're looking at were written this morning. Paul was saying in different words that his strongest desire that was that Christ would be his vision and not be all else to him save what God is to him. Even Jesus himself admonished us to make God our vision, to make God our all in all. We see in Matthew where Jesus repeated and affirmed the Old Testament commandment as vital to us. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, we read this, And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and with all your mind. Now that's pretty all-encompassing. All, right? All means everything. Using the language we're thinking about this morning, Jesus was telling us, make the Lord your God your all in all. Make Him your vision. Make Him more important than anything else in your life. Jesus clearly knew the human heart. He was God the Son. But he also experienced the same temptations we do. So because he experienced these in the flesh, he knew how prone we are to create idols out of bad things and even good things. 
He knew that we would find great value in things and in people, even above himself sometimes. So we see these admonishments in his word. In the context of money, Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Though the context of this passage was clearly material things, if we take verse 21, we can apply this beyond just the financial or the material. This idea that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do we treasure? What do we treasure? What do we desire most? We can often discern this by what consumes our time and our thoughts. With finances, you've heard this before, the best way we can discern where our treasure is is by looking at our checkbook. What do we spend our money on? But what does the checkbook of our heart look like? What does the checkbook of our heart look like? In what endeavors do we invest? In what thoughts are we consumed? Now again, I'm not advocating here a life of stoic self-denial. God may call us to do that periodically, and some of us more than others. But that's not what this is about. Although we might be called to such a life, God gives us good things to enjoy. That's clear in Scripture as well. But do the gifts themselves consume our thoughts and our time, or does the giver of those good gifts consume our thoughts and our time and our expenditures? Treasuring the wrong things takes our hearts to the wrong place. Whether we're willing to admit it or not, what we treasure the most is what controls us. What we treasure the most is our vision. We see repeatedly in Scripture that when the people of God had a vision for who God is and what He has done for us, they've gone on and we see the record of how they lived their lives faithfully and accomplished much for the kingdom of God. We see Joshua, for example, who witnessed God do miracles through Moses and thus get a sense of God's glory, who he is, and God's power and what he did for God's people. And he went on to be used by God miraculously himself, didn't he? Isaiah saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple. And this immense vision that Isaiah saw of the king of kings launched him into spectacular service and leadership. He said, here am I, send me. He was ready. He was ready to be launched, wasn't he? We see that Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured so that his glory shone as the sun, and they went forward as key leaders in the apostolic church. Paul, who was not a part of the original apostolic band, became the missionary leader of the church, fueled by being caught up to the third heaven and hearing and seeing things he could not describe. An immense, growing vision of God is the sin qua non, the grand distinction, the continental divide of spiritual leadership. It's said that Robert Dick Wilson, the celebrated Old Testament scholar who served at Princeton Seminary at the beginning of last century, upon hearing that an alumnus was returning to preach, would slip back into the back of Miller Chapel and listen only once, saying, when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. 
and then I know what their ministry will be. One's vision of God, his visio dei, is everything. It's everything. Are we big godders or little godders? Is God a big God to us? Or is he just a little God who we kind of involve in our lives when it's convenient for us? Is God our vision? You know, think of it. When you have something right here, what do you see? That's all you see. Is God big enough to fill our field of vision? I mean, that's a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, is he big enough? Let me add that we don't necessarily have to have all the kinds of supernatural visions that these great leaders we see had in Scripture. I'm not discounting that we can because God can do anything he wants to do, but we don't necessarily need them. And why do I say that? Remember what we saw near the beginning. To have God be our vision, to have God be our all in all, we need to see two things. We need to see who he is, and we need to see what he has already done for us in Christ. And how do we see these things? We see these things clearly in his creation, and we see these things fleshed out, his character in his word. Amen? So we have two great books of vision. We have the book of Scripture, which repeatedly reveals God's glory. And we have the book, quote-unquote, of creation, which continuously witnesses to God's greatness. Take, for example, the stars. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The massive vision is always before you, if you will just look. Read the great Bible passages to enlarge your vision of God's greatness. Look up at the stars and look around at creation. Pray for a growing revelation of God's vastness and for the grace to believe what you read and see. Amen? That's where I'd kind of like to end this morning. I want to pray for a growing revelation of God's vastness. I want to be a big Godder. Amen? And for the grace to believe what I read in his word and what I see in his creation. Now some of you this morning are like me and you have to admit that though we wish it were so, we cannot honestly say that God is always our vision, that he is our vision, that he's always our all in all. Maybe sometimes, maybe even often, but not as often as we'd like it to be that way. And I'm here to tell you that this is not something you can work up or develop on your own. A reminder that we have to recognize that this great hymn that we've talked about this morning, Be Thou My Vision, it's a prayer, isn't it? It's a prayer. It's a hymn of worship, but it's also a prayer. And prayer is asking God to do something that we cannot do on our own. And it's a prayer that we should pray, even as we sing it in worship. And I'm hoping, I'll tell you what, when we sing this again in a couple weeks, month, whatever, I'm going to remember that this is a prayer, and when I sing it, I'm going to be praying it to God. Amen? Lord, be my vision. Lord, may nothing else in my life ever take the place of the importance of you. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. And if that's your prayer this morning, I want you to stand with me briefly as we close and pray that God would be our all in all, that God would be our consuming passion, that he would truly be our vision day by day and moment by moment, that he would be enough to satisfy in all of life's challenges. Amen. Heavenly Father, we're a grateful people. We're grateful, Father, for who you are. 
and we're grateful for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we're grateful that you've communicated these things to us with such clarity through creation and through your word. We know who you are, Father. And because we know who you are, Father, we do pray that you would help us to have you be our vision. Lord, that nothing else, we pray that nothing else would ever be as important to us as our relationship with you and knowing you, as Paul said, knowing Christ Jesus. We pray, Heavenly Father, that when we rise up in the morning and when we go to sleep at the end of the day, that you would be our vision. We pray, Heavenly Father, that when we're in our workplace, that you would be our vision. We pray, Heavenly Father, that when we're doing any of our extracurricular activities, you would be our vision. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in every relationship we have, especially, even especially in those relationships that are good relationships, but also those that are difficult, we pray that you would be our vision. Father, that you would be our all-consuming passion. And Father, that nothing compares to you. We recognize this truth intellectually, Father, but we desire to be there spiritually and emotionally in each of our hearts. So, Father, we commit this prayer to you. Be thou our vision, Father. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.